0: Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are starting a two-month series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this teaching today is entitled An Introduction to a Series on Hatred. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book while in the Christian Bible, they are separated into two books. What this means is that Ezra and Nehemiah were meant to be read back to back. So because of that, we will be doing these two books over the next two months on the Paradox podcast. Now, when you read these two books, it's important for us to note that there are two horrific acts of hatred that happen in Ezra and Nehemiah. The first is found in Ezra chapter 10, and the second is found in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, what is found in Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 13 is so intense in the way it portrays hatred that I think we need to build our entire series around these two chapters. So because of that, over the next three weeks, we'll be talking about a series on hatred as found in Ezra, And then we'll pick up, over the three weeks after that, a series on hatred in Nehemiah. Now, this may seem like a lot of hatred to you, and I would tell you you're not alone in thinking that. But I think it's important for us to talk about hatred, because when I look at Christianity in America today, I am overwhelmed by the amount of hatred coming from my religious community. And so this series is meant to ask questions about why we hate where hatred starts, and what we can do to avoid falling to the temptation of hatred. Now today, I'm not going to fully address those acts that are found in Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 13, because this episode is meant to serve as an introduction to the hatred that is found in Ezra Nehemiah. So with that in mind, let's get a sense of the context that gave birth to these two writings and what they mean for us today. So let's go back all the way to 1050 BCE when the 12 tribes of Israel gathered together and collectively said, we want a king. Now the prophet, the lead judge of these 12 tribes of Israel, begrudgingly anointed a man named Saul as the first king of Israel. Saul reigned for 40 years between approximately 1050 to 1010 BCE when he lost a battle to the Philistines at Mount Galboa. Saul's death led to a vacuum in power, and a man named David violently assaulted and won the throne of Israel, and he reigned from 40 years from about 1010 to 970 BCE. Now, after David died, his son Solomon took the throne, and his son Solomon led Israel into its greatest moment of prosperity in history. Solomon reigned for 40 years from about 970 to 930 BCE, and he made Israel rich and powerful. Israel was so wealthy that they had enough money to build a temple to God. And Solomon spent seven years building this temple, and at the completion, he led a dedication ceremony where God heard the prayers of Solomon on behalf of the Israelites, and God anointed the temple by sending fire down from heaven to ignite the first offering on the altar before the temple. This miracle was a symbol that God was with the people of Israel. But as time went by, the people of Israel became more and more frustrated and angry with King Solomon. To give you some perspective, all you have to do is read First Kings where we read that Solomon spent seven years building his temple in 1 Kings chapter 6. But a few chapters to the right in 1 Kings chapter 9, we read at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. Now what this verse is telling us is that Solomon spent seven years on God's house and spent nearly double that time, 13 years, building Solomon's house. This made the people of Israel very angry. Not only that, but in order to build these massive construction projects, Solomon enslaved his own people to keep costs down. So when Solomon died, you can imagine there was a sigh of relief. There was such relief that the people of Israel went to Solomon's son, a man named Rehoboam, and they asked him to be a kind king, unlike his father. Rehoboam said, I need some time to think about whether I will be a kind king or whether I will be a king like my father. And so he retreats with some advisors to consider his future. Now, some of his advisors tell the king, Rehoboam, you should go before the people and hold out your little finger and say these words found in 1 Kings chapter 12. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Rehoboam heard this and said, That's the kind of king I want to be. And so he returned to the people of Israel and said, where my father used whips, I will use scorpions. Now, these comments obviously made the people of Israel very angry. So angry, in fact, that several tribes seceded from the union and formed their own sovereign nation of Israel to the north. Rehoboam remained on the throne in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. And for the next 200 years, these two nations, Israel and Judah, would war with each other, they would ally with each other, they would trust each other, and they would lie to each other all throughout those centuries. Until in 722 BCE, an empire arose to the north known as Assyria. And in 722 BCE, Assyria marched on the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed it, and Israel was no more. After destroying Israel, Assyria turned to Judah and said, are you guys next? And Judah said, no, thank you. We'd like to be your allies. And Judah was able to survive because of their quick diplomacy with Assyria. A hundred years after Assyria destroyed Israel, a new empire rose to the east known as Babylon. And in 612 BCE, Babylon marched and fought against Assyria and destroyed them. And 612 marks the end of the Assyrian Empire. 26 years later, in the year 586 BCE, Babylon marches on Judah, destroys Judah, and forces all living survivors to return with them to Babylon to live in exile. For the next 47 years, from 586 to 539 BCE, the people of Judah live in Babylon away from their home. This forced exile is one of the most important moments in Old Testament history. Because it's here that the people of Judah looked around at their surroundings, at a place that was not their home, and they asked a pressing theological question Why are we in Babylon? This question is the dominant theological question during the Babylonian exile. After all, if God is all-powerful, all-loving, and all-knowing, then why would God allow this exile to happen to us? And so because this question is being asked in exile, the people from Judah begin to write answers to this question. Specifically, they write down their history with the books 1 and 2 Samuel and First and 2 Kings. These books are meant to answer the question, why are we in Babylon? And the overwhelming answer that comes from those books is that we are in Babylon because we wanted a king when God didn't want us to have a king. And when you look at the history of all of the kings of Judah, what we find consistently is that they were dirty, rotten scoundrels. And because of their bad behavior, God had no choice but to punish us by this exile that we are currently living in. So this went on for 47 years, which is much longer than my lifetime. And this all changed when another power rose to the east of Babylon, a power known as the Persian Empire led by King Cyrus. In 539 BCE, Cyrus led an army against the Babylonian Empire and defeated the Babylonians on their home turf. Upon defeating the Babylonians, Cyrus looks at these people of Judah and he says, where are you from? And they say, we're from Jerusalem. And he says, you are free to go home. Because of this, Cyrus is viewed as a messianic liberator within Jewish history. This is recorded in the very first verse of Ezra. We read, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. And upon Persian liberation, the Jews return all the way back across the desert to Jerusalem, And according to Ezra chapter 2, we read that about 50,000 Jews return home. Now, a few stay back in Babylon, but 50,000 cross the desert to return home. And while the Persians liberated them, it's important for us to note that this is not total liberation. Because when the Jews returned to Jerusalem, they were still expected to pay taxes to the Persian Empire. So the Jews who had been anticipating God's liberation all of a sudden are living with a half-liberation. But in their half-liberated state, the Jews begin rebuilding their temple in Jerusalem, the one that the Babylonians had destroyed. Eight years later, the temple is finished. At the dedication ceremony, there is great anticipation. After all, the last time this happened, fire fell down from heaven to tell the people of Israel that God was with them. So they do another dedication ceremony and wait and wait and wait. There is no fire that falls from heaven this time. And while the author of Ezra Nehemiah doesn't comment too much on this absence of fire, you can imagine that there is massive panic that happens within the nation of Judah. Their entire hopes rested on returning home to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, and God showing God's people that God is with them. And yet, now they were asking the question, is God even with us today? This nervous anticipation lasted for another 72 years. Here in 458 BCE, we are introduced to a man named Ezra. Now, Ezra is a Jew, but he is a Jew who was born in Babylon, His ancestors stayed behind. They did not return to Jerusalem right away. But in Ezra chapter 7, we read about how Ezra leads about 4,000 Jews who are living in Babylon to return to Jerusalem. Thirteen years after Ezra returns, a man named Nehemiah, who has also been born in Babylon and is also a Jew, decides that he will return to Jerusalem in 445 BCE, and his task that he believes God has called him to is to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Shortly after Nehemiah completes the wall, there is a theological question that shows up that has to be answered by the people who are living in Judah. And the question they are asking is this. Are we still the people of God? This question is the dominant theological question during the post-exilic period. Does God still care about us? And if God does, then why are we living the way that we do, where we're still paying taxes to the Persians? Is God punishing us? And if God is punishing us, then for what? For the behavior of our kings that we have no association with anymore? So this question, are we still the people of God is important to know. Because in response to this question, the people who are living in Judah end up rewriting their history. The history that's found in 1st and 2nd Kings is recorded differently in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And the reason for these discrepancies is because it's answering a different question than when 1st and 2nd Kings was written. For this reason, 1 and 2 Chronicles and First and Second Kings disagree on some historical facts. And the reason for this is because the people of Judah are trying to write their theology through their history in a way that matches their current situation. And that current situation is very different than when history was recorded while they were in exile. So 1 and 2 Chronicles seeks to answer the question, are we still the people of God? through a lens of the people of Judah's history. Now, shortly after 1 and 2 Chronicles is written, a different author writes Ezra Nehemiah as a continuation of 1 and 2 Chronicles. And this is important to understand because Ezra Nehemiah was written to answer the question, are we still the people of God? In other words, Ezra Nehemiah was written to establish a religious identity in a non-miraculous, disempowered, and heavily taxed world. And Ezra and Nehemiah are searching for identity in the midst of all of that. Now, identity is quite well defined in the New Oxford American Dictionary. The definition of identity is the fact of being who or what a person is. So Ezra Nehemiah asks us to consider what our religious identity is. So with that consideration, I would like to ask you, what is your religious or non-religious identity? And then I'd like to ask you an important follow-up question. What does it mean for you to identify that way? Now those are some weighty questions. And the fact is, when we have weighty questions, we need to go to the highest form of art that human beings have to offer. I'm speaking, of course, of The Bachelorette on ABC. Now, at this point, I need to make a confession. Um, I really like The Bachelorette. I really like The Bachelor. And if you want to know why I like these shows so much, it makes me feel like a very moral person. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I'm talking to you about this show is because this show, this season, had a really fascinating discussion between Hannah, who was the bachelorette, and the fourth place finisher in this game show, which is a man named Luke P. Now, Luke P. made it all the way to Fantasy Sweet Week, and as he got to Fantasy Sweet Week, Luke P. decided it was in his best interest to bring up the topic of sex with Hannah. So he begins this conversation over dinner by saying, so let's talk about sex. Luke P. then starts quoting Hebrews while he's on the Bachelorette. And I have to tell you, when they start quoting Hebrews on the Bachelorette, I am a happy pastor. So here's Luke talking to Hannah about what's in Hebrews and how the author of Hebrews says that the marriage bed should be undefiled. And then he says to her, I just want to make sure that you're not sleeping with any other contestants on the show. Now, Hannah gets really angry at this because she feels like Luke is trying to control her, because let's face it, Luke is. The conversation grows in intensity, and at one point, Hannah gets so mad that she looks at Luke and says, Well, I have had sex, and honestly, Jesus still loves me. Now, let's break this down for a moment, shall we? According to Luke, Christians cannot have sex outside of marriage. According to Hannah, Christians can have sex outside of marriage. So that raises the question to you who is listening to this podcast. Do you believe that Christians can have sex outside of marriage and still be Christian? Now, you may agree or disagree, but when we look at Luke and Hannah disagreeing about this principle we have to understand what this disagreement is. Because at the heart of this disagreement, there is a very real conversation about religious identity. And this conversation about religious identity is exactly what's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah. If we go from the Bachelorette all the way back to 400 BCE, where people are asking the question, are we still the people of God? The author of Ezra Nehemiah comes along and starts to define what their religious identity is. But the way that the author does this is he points to people outside of Judah and says, well, those people are definitely not the people of God. Therefore, we need to emphasize our differences so God can distinguish between us and them. And when we read Ezra Nehemiah closely, we find that the author of Ezra Nehemiah defined their religious identity by who they weren't and what they didn't do. The author of Ezra Nehemiah knew that the people of Judah were, in fact, the people of God because they weren't those people and they weren't doing those things. This is very similar to what Christians do today, and this is exactly what played out on The Bachelorette. The church comes along and says Christians don't have sex outside of marriage. Luke says amen. He then goes on a date with Hannah and quotes Hebrews at her. And the church backs Luke up and says Hannah is wrong and isn't really a Christian. Because real Christians, according to the church, do not have sex outside of marriage. And what Luke P. did on The Bachelorette is nearly identical to what Ezra and Nehemiah did. While this may seem like I'm being harsh on Luke, I know what it's like to be Luke. Because when I went to college, I went to Montana State University, and I was part of a denomination that did not drink alcohol. We didn't believe that you could be part of my denomination and drink. So while I was at Montana State, I did not drink one drop of alcohol alcohol. This was all well and good until I returned back home and several of my friends who were part of the same denomination were drinking alcohol. Now I will tell you that I was not a good person. I was not a nice person. I was no fun to be around because I believed I was spiritually superior when compared to those friends who drank alcohol. Now I'm not proud of this story. I'm embarrassed by it and I will tell you that I've had to apologize to several people because my arrogance was driving a wedge between us. I tell you this story because what I did in that moment after I returned from Montana State was nearly identical to what Ezra and Nehemiah did. One other story of how Christians do this today is the way that we define marriage. Christians today, I've heard this often, define marriage as being exclusively between one man and one woman. This definition is purposely homophobic and directed precisely at the LGBT community in an effort to exclude same-sex marriages. And there is a lot of pain in these words, and the reason for this pain is because what Christians are doing with defining marriage this way is nearly identical to what Ezra and Nehemiah did. Because the author of Ezra and Nehemiah defined their religious identity by who they weren't and what they didn't do. In other words, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah defined their religious identity in terms of opposition. Opposition. So Ezra looks around and he says, well, we're the only people of God and everyone else isn't. He immediately opposes interracial marriage and uses the religious institution to force divorces and send women and children out into the wilderness to die. Nehemiah looks around and says, well, we don't sell stuff on the Sabbath because we're the people of God. And he uses his political power to make life miserable for merchants who try to sell things on the Sabbath. Not only that, but Nehemiah ends up beating children because he hates the language they speak because it's not the native tongue of Hebrew. So when the author of Ezra Nehemiah defines religious identity in terms of opposition, it's very easy to see how this identity of opposition leads to an intense hatred. And the reason I think it's so important for us to study Ezra and Nehemiah today is because it reminds us and it teaches us a very valuable lesson. If we define our religious identities by what we are against, then our identities will lead to hatred. If you say, I know I'm a Christian because I don't do this and I don't do that and I'm not one of those... Then you will end up hating the people that you are against. Think about for a moment what happens when Christians point toward Muslims and say, Well, I know they're not the people of God. Well, this will then lead to Islamophobia. Now, the hope that's found in Ezra Nehemiah is that you don't have to fall victim to the temptation. Of hatred because if you define your religious identity by what you are for then your identity can lead you to love so I think one of the most valuable things that you and I can do is to define what it means to be a Christian or to be part of the religious identity that we identify with so with that in mind I'd like to ask you a question how do you know That you are a Christian? I want you to think about that answer for a moment. Because Ezra Nehemiah teaches us that this is a question worth answering. In fact, I would like to invite you to grab a piece of paper right now and a pen. Now once you get the piece of paper, I would like for you to finish a sentence for me. At the top of this piece of paper, write the following words this is the beginning of the sentence the proof that i am a christian is that and then i would like you to finish it now before you finish it a couple of rules the first rule is you can use no more than 10 words beyond what i gave you the second rule is that you cannot define or answer or finish this sentence in terms of opposition. So take a moment and finish this sentence. The proof that I am a Christian is that I... As you finish writing your answer, I would like to share with you an answer that's been helpful to me. Now, I share this answer with you not to convince you that my answer is better than yours, but to show you how this can inform the way you move and breathe and live in this world. Not only that, but when you look at your current answer, it's okay if that answer changes. I know that just 10 years ago, I would have finished this sentence very differently than I would today. And when we change answers to questions like this, that is more than acceptable because it shows that we grow and understand things and there is more to learn. So the very best answer I have found to this question of what does it mean to be a Christian is from Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan priest who lives in New Mexico. The way he answers or finishes this sentence is this way, and it's from his book, The Universal Christ, which was published earlier this year. In that book, he writes, the proof that you are a Christian is that you can see Christ everywhere else. Let me read it again. The proof that you are a Christian is that you can see Christ everywhere else. Now, I love this definition, but I would like to offer a small change to make it a little more adaptable to my current experience. For this reason, I change Richard Rohr's definition to the following. The proof that you are a Christian is that you are striving to see Christ everywhere else. The reason for this change is because it takes time, energy, and effort to begin to see Christ everywhere else. In fact, the Church of Paradox exists to see and embrace Jesus Christ and all. We meet every week because it can be difficult to find Jesus in the middle of heartache, of failure, of depression, of death. If you've ever been to a funeral, it can be very disorienting and uncertain where God is in the midst of this pain. When there is a blinding tragedy where there's so much suffering, it's hard to make sense of which way's up and which way's down. Something like a car accident where multiple deaths occur. Well, it's hard to find Christ in the middle of that, isn't it? Or if you were to consider your enemies, people who genuinely want what's worst for you, how do you see Christ in their life and their behavior? And how do you love them without enabling them while also loving yourself? These are difficult questions to answer. They take time and nuance and prayer and thought. And the reason this church exists is to help you and to help me find ways to see Christ in the midst of all of this mess in both the beauty and the despair. Now, our church has been going for about three and a half years now. And over those three and a half years, I have been with you during some of the happiest times. And I have also been with you during some of the hardest times. And the thing that you have taught me again and again and again is that in those moments where I'm convinced that God has left the building, that God has abandoned you somehow and has left me alone here with you. You have shown me again and again that God can be found everywhere. And even in the darkest of circumstances, there is still a presence that goes beyond description. And you have shown me that God is where God should not be. The work of our church is to help you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. We do this because we believe that our identity as Christians is not in opposition to someone, but instead is found in the presence of Christ everywhere. And so may you, my brothers and sisters, be able to define what your religion is and how you know you are a part of it. And as you define those things, may you have the courage to not define them in terms of opposition, but instead by what you stand for. And may we all see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.